you have a copy of the scriptures, let's look together this morning at Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 29 through 31, and then 66 through 72. I think it'll be printed on the screen behind me. Mark 14, 29 to 31, and then 66 to 72. Beloved, I'm about to read to you just a portion of a letter from home. This is God's word to you. Peter said, uh, said to him, verse 29, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystander again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, your word is true, and we sit here under it. Your word is true not only in what it says about everything but it's specifically true about how that everything relates to us. Would you please convince us this morning, Lord, that we will never, ever, ever outgrow our need to be kept. Glorify yourself during this time and bring us, bring us to a sense of how amazing and glorious and powerful you are so that we would serve you, follow you, repent of our sins, obey you from loving hearts because we've, we're beginning to know more and more of your forgiveness. Through Jesus I pray, amen. 
So the last number of months, we've been kind of rummaging through this gospel of Mark, Mark's account of the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you realize that as we're going through this gospel account, that we're getting closer and closer and closer to the decisive event in all of the world. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting closer and closer. Isn't it interesting that Mark spends roughly the first eight plus chapters answering these questions, the questions that I put before you, the questions that are always to be on our minds? Who is Jesus? Who do people say that he is? Who do you say that Jesus is? You remember that? Mark spends over half of his book on that and those questions, and then he slows down. Once Jesus enters Jerusalem in chapter 11, we've got a third of Mark's book that focus on the last week and the last few days and really the last few hours in the life of Christ. You see, once Jesus enters Jerusalem in chapter 11, once he enters into Jerusalem, he has crossed the point of no return. He is entering into Jerusalem because he is going to die. Now, please don't have a pity party for Jesus. Don't superimpose your view of death or your view of dying onto Jesus. Because what's so shocking about Christianity and what's so endearing about the message of Christianity and the truth of the gospel is that it was for the joy of that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. Isn't that amazing? So we see that Jesus is moving toward the cross. He's not quite there, but he's awfully close. And we come to this story today of the denial. What I want you to take away today, what I want you to be challenged with in your hearts and try to live that out in your families and at work and through these doors and out into the community and wherever you're going. I want you to take this away. That Jesus will keep you. And in keeping you, he actually will give you a sense of humor. Jesus will keep you. And in keeping you, he will give you a sense of humor. Let's dive into the story. Obviously, the meat of the story is 66 through 72, those verses that I read. But I read verse 29 through 31 because there's a little bit of a background to these verses in 66 through 72. You see, several hours before the events that take place in 66 through 72, several hours before that, Jesus was having a conversation with his disciples. He had a conversation with them in which he told them, The shepherd is going to be struck, and the sheep are going to scatter. Jesus is the shepherd, his disciples are the sheep. And Jesus says, not too long from now, something is going to happen, and all of y'all are going to run. One of you is going to betray me, all of you are going to scatter, and one of you is going to deny me. And the disciples begin initially to say, well, is it me? Is it I? Remember that? Is it I? And then a little bit later, Peter gets a little bold. 
And Jesus says, one of you is going to deny me. And Peter says, no, I won't. I would never do that, Jesus. Jesus, I will not deny you. It almost seems that it's because of that that Jesus goes into a little bit more detail. Really, Peter? Well, here's the deal. You're going to deny me three times. Peter's even more adamant. I will not, even if I have to go to the cross with you and die, even if I have to go to prison in Luke's account, I will not deny you. Well, as you already know, that happens, right? Jesus, in looking in the verses just before verse 66, it's not just that he's already had a conversation a few hours before, but there's a trial underway. Verses 53 to 65, Jesus is under trial. He is actually upstairs in Caiaphas' palace. We understand that because Mark tells us in verse 66, and Peter was below in the courtyard. Jesus was above. He was on trial. And here, while Jesus is upstairs, while Jesus is being tried and examined, which we'll look at perhaps next week, unless Jesus returns, Peter is downstairs in the courtyard. He's there gathering with a bunch of people, and the focus is on Peter. Peter's there mingling, Peter, Peter is there talking, and let's just admit something. You know, for all of Peter's outlandish, exaggerated, um, talking before he ever thinks, Ness, about him, for all of that, for all of his self-confidence, for all of his brazen optimism in himself, here's Peter following Jesus. He made it further geographically than anyone else, didn't he? We don't read of anybody else following Jesus to the trial. For all of Peter's outlandishness and for all of Peter's self, self-confidence, here he is in the courtyard. Judas is nowhere to be found. John, James, Andrew, Matthew, all the rest, gone. Poof. It was like they just, ba- they just vanished. And here we have Peter in the courtyard. And it's in the courtyard that this encounter takes place. After he was in the courtyard for a little while, a young girl came up to Peter and said, after giving Peter a hard look, I mean, you've been in these situations where you're at a social setting and someone's looking at you and someone's really looking at you, not to make you uncomfortable, but you know, they're just looking because you can tell something's going on in their mind. She gave Peter a really hard look. Then finally came up to him and said, Peter, you're you're a follower, aren't you? You're You're with Jesus, the guy that's upstairs. You're with him, aren't you? Peter says, no, I'm not. I I don't even know that guy. And then the text seems to indicate that it was like Peter just kind of slithered back out of the spotlight. You ever had that experience in your life? There's a strange moment. Someone asked you something you perhaps were not expecting. You were in a situation in which you were trying just to fit in with the crowd, hoping no attention would be drawn to you at all. And for whatever reason, all of a sudden the attention is pointed to you, at you, 
it's on you. And you had to think to yourself, whoa, well, how do I, how do I get out of this one? And Peter says, I don't know the man, and he just kind of slithers out of the way. Some time passes, and now there are other bystanders around Peter. And the woman comes up, and she sees Peter with these bystanders, and it, it seems as though she addresses the bystanders and says, Hey, bystanders, don't you recognize this guy, Peter? Don't you recognize him? He is with Jesus. He is with the Christ. He is a follower. He is a disciple of Jesus. The bystanders obviously think that that's true. Well, Peter wants nothing to do with this either a second time, does he? I am not. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even know this guy. Peter tries to get out of the spotlight again. Some time passes by, and now the bystanders come up to Peter the third time, and they say, Peter, aren't you with this man? Aren't you here with Jesus? Aren't you a follower? After all, you're a Galilean. You don't sound like us. You don't look like us. You got that funny accent. Surely you're with that guy. Surely you're with Jesus. At this point, Peter doesn't just deny that he's with Jesus. The text tells you that he actually begins to swear and he begins to curse in order to add emphasis to the fact that he doesn't know the Lord Jesus at all. He begins to swear as if to say something like this, I swear to God, I do not know Jesus. I swear to God, I am not a follower of Jesus. And it's not just that he swears. It's just, it's actually that he brings out a curse. Now, you don't see this in the English translations. But if you have the ESV, and I think also the NIV, what you find is that he says that he brings a curse on himself. Well, guess what? There's no on himself in the original. Peter begins to curse, and that cursing actually needs an object. And many scholars have pointed out, do you know who Peter is cursing? Not himself. He's cursing Jesus. The word in the original is one you've probably heard before. You know the term anathema? You heard that word before? Peter is using that word. He is anathematizing Jesus. Now, here's what anathema means. As far as my knowledge goes, and I don't have all knowledge that there is, I'm still studying the Bible. I don't know of any stronger language in the Scripture to describe a curse than anathema. Those of you in the youth group, you're going to learn about this because it's the same word that's used in Galatians. You're going to find out about this in a few weeks. To anathematize means this. It means to lift up and put directly in face-to-face -face encounter with God. 
so that God might damn them. When Peter begins to curse, he is actually calling upon God to damn Jesus. That is very strong language, isn't it? Peter, I don't know this guy. I don't follow him. As a matter of fact, I swear to God, I wish that God would damn him. See, what starts out in a one-to-one relationship here between one-on-one encounter with this woman and Peter is that he initially denies Jesus to her one-on-one. And then it becomes public with the bystanders. And then it gets to the point where he actually begins to curse and to swear that he doesn't know Jesus at all. And as soon as he denied that third time, the text tells you the rooster crowed. Can you imagine what that would have been like? You see, you got the backstory, right? You remember that Jesus told him that he was going to deny and that the rooster would crow. Some other time we'll develop the whole idea that Luke lays out that Satan actually asks for Peter. But we'll save that till we go through Luke. But here we have Peter denying Jesus, the rooster crows, and Luke tells us one more thing. Guess what else happens after the rooster crows? This is perhaps the biggest moment where Peter would have known his guilt. In Luke's account, Peter's eyes meet the eyes of Jesus. Peter denies, the rooster crows, Peter looks, and there are the eyes of Jesus looking right back at him. Then you can understand why Peter runs away, basically, and begins to burst into tears. Uncontrollably, he wept. How quickly Peter's confidence turned to shame, huh? Well, that's the story. Now we need to look at the so what. What does this story mean? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for my life? What does it mean? Well, I want you to know that this story is about us. This story is about you, and this story is about me. It's descriptive of our lives. You see, a trial is going on. Jesus is on trial, Jesus has started his trial, Peter is on trial, and every single time we open up the Bible, every single time we try to understand the Word of God, we are on trial. Every time the Word of God is read, every time the Word of God is opened, it is examining us. It is penetrating deep within us. It is is questioning and examining our thoughts and our motives and our actions. Every time it opens up, every time the Bible is opened, we are on trial. It's not so much that the Bible is on trial and we get to sit in judgment on it and we get to decide whether or not we want to believe it. The truth is is that the Bible is true whether we believe it or not. The truth is that God is real and he sees everything and he's in complete control whether we want to admit that or not. And therefore, when the Bible is opened, it is examining us. And it is exposing our lives. 
It's exposing what we say. It's exposing what we say and then what we don't do. It exposes how much confidence we really have in ourselves and how much hope we really put in ourselves and in our own abilities. It examines all of us thoroughly. Now see, let's back up just for a second just to get a a wider angle view of this. Because my guess is you might feel very intimidated with that, and you should. I do. You see, the truth is, we will not make it through our lives without being questioned. It's just not going to happen. You can't live your life without being questioned about your life. You are unable to live your life. I am unable to live my life without being questioned about my faith. Without being questioned about my decisions. Without being questioned about my life. Without being challenged in my life. My guess is this past week was full of people questioning you about your life and your decisions, and what you're doing, and why you're doing it, and what you think, and what you believe, even if it was a very informal setting, even if it was a passing comment that you just let go on by. Beloved, we cannot live our lives without being questioned. You just can't do it. And most of the time, we spend our lives just trying to surround ourselves with people that are going to tell us that we are okay. Most of the time, we just want to associate with people that will just pat us on the back and just be like, it's okay, you're okay, those people are jerks. You're always right, they're always wrong. I mean, that's what we crave, isn't it? That's just one of the millions of ways that sin just erupts and shows itself in our lives, that we just want to be told we are okay. And to press this even further, the message of Christianity and the Bible does not tell us that we are okay. God's word to you this morning is that you're not okay. That I am not okay. And he is going to question you and probe. He's going to get you to think about your motives for why you do things. Wouldn't it all just be easier if God just said, just do these two things and and then everything's going to be great? Oh yeah, he has. Love God with all your mind and heart and soul and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That's it. We don't do that either, do we? You see, what's happening here is that we are being challenged to really be honest with our lives. And to really come clean on how many times we live as if we are completely confident in our own abilities and how we hope and what we think we can do in the future. And all of that is wrapped in motivations and motivated with action in which we just want to be around people that tell us we're okay. And even though this story is about us, even though this story is about you and this story is about me, I want you to know this. This story is actually more about the Lord Jesus Christ. This story is more about Jesus. And I want to show that to you in two ways. 
This is the first one. What has shocked me about reading the story over and over and praying through it, what has shocked me in reading back through 11 through 15 again and again and again is this. How much control Jesus is in. Isn't it awesome? In the midst of all of this, in the midst of everything that's going on, Jesus is a rock. And he is in complete control. Does Jesus know that he's going to suffer and die? Yes, he does. Does Jesus know that people are going to betray him? Yes, he does. Does he know that all his disciples are going to scatter? Yes, he does. Does he know that in suffering and dying, he's going to have to endure the wrath of God? Remember the cup? Yes. He knows everything that is going on. He is in absolute, complete control. And that means that if you're willing to admit that you are a whole lot more confident in yourself than you should be, and you're putting a whole lot more hope in your abilities than you should, that means that God is beginning to pry your own pride away from yourself. He's beginning to expose that you need something other than yourself, and you need something other than other people telling you that you're okay. It means that you might begin to see that in all the, the questioning and all the exposure of life, that there's only one person who is going to be absolutely in control and who is not afraid of anything that you can do or will do or won't do. And his name is Jesus. Because he sees the worst about you before you do it. And you can look him straight in the eye and you can say, I won't deny you. You can look him straight in the eye and say, Jesus, I want you to have all of me. And then spend a whole lot of years trying to cover all that up. Thinking he can't. Thinking he won't. Thinking you can keep things from him. Jesus is in absolute control. In the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this turmoil, in the midst of all the betrayal, in the midst of denial, in the midst of his closest companions running away, in the midst of knowing that he's going to have to suffer, in the midst of knowing he's going to have to die, in the midst of knowing he's going to have to drink the wrath of God on his own being, he is a rock. He is an immovable rock. And he is in absolute control. So if you are willing to acknowledge your own confidence in yourself, if you're willing to acknowledge the lies that you live by and that I live by, and that there are all kinds of unfulfilled promises that we make regularly, if we're willing to stop trying to live just craving for people to tell us we're okay, if you're willing, if you're able, if you are strengthened to do that, if you're humble, if you're humbled to do that, to tell and admit that you're prone to be confident in yourself, that I want you to know what you'll find is great freedom. And what you'll find is something that someone shared with me this week as I was reading through this passage and reading what others have said, and I never would have thought of this in a million years. It's not just that we find freedom, but that what we'll actually find, and this isn't my idea, I got this from someone else, but I have to share it with you because it really affected me. What you'll find is that you'll have a sense of humor. 
And you're probably wondering, what in the world is this guy saying? Well, let me remind you. What I want to show you from this text is that Jesus will keep you. And in keeping you, he will give you a sense of humor. You see, there are two great enemies to humor. You know this? One is self-confidence. And the other is insecurity. And as you live your life and as I live my life, and people begin to question us about what we're doing and, and why we're doing things and, and who we are and why we've done this and why we've chosen that and why we haven't chosen that. If, if, we, are, if we are able to admit that that's going to go on and we can't stop it from happening, then the question, when come, the, the question that will come to us like, well, are you a Christian? You see, if, if we're just full of self-confidence, we're going to take that question and we're going to say, of course I'm a Christian. What do you mean? I live in Greenville, North Carolina. I own a Bible. I go to church every now and then. I spend time with the right people. I don't mess with bad stuff. If we're, if we're just oozing with self-confidence, it just comes out when people ask us stuff. Then we just instinctively respond, well, what do you mean? Of course I am. Of course I am. And if we're on the other side and we get all those questions and we're full of insecurity, what ends up happening is when someone says, well, well, are you a Christian? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? We'll respond by saying, well, you know, I sure am trying. I sure am trying. But it's really hard. And I'm not doing that well. And I'm not really sure I'm going to be able to make it. I mean, I'm trying really hard. I'm doing all these things. I'm doing my best, trying to live right. But to be honest with you, it just, it's just not, it's just not good. See, either when you're, when you're dominated with self-confidence or when you're dominated with insecurity, it, it, just, it just sucks the life out of those questions. You know that? And all of us, at times, are really, really self-confident, and often we're blind to it. And other times, we're really insecure, and we're blind to it. And the truth is, when we acknowledge our sin on an ongoing basis and are continually open to admitting our own self-confidence, what happens is that that self-confidence and that insecurity is balanced out. You see, we live in a culture that, uh, that really wants us to minimize our problems, right? We live in a culture that just says, you know what, just ignore your problems and, and you'll just be able to move on. Just ignore them. Just, just tell yourself positive things all the time. When the gospel begins to take root in our lives, when someone asks us a question about our faith, you know, this is how we might respond. You're asking if I'm a Christian? Yes. And it is unbelievable. Let me tell you about this. I looked Jesus in the eye about three hours ago. And he told me I was going to deny him. And I looked him dead in the eye and I said, I would never do this. And not long after that, I denied him point blank, and I, call, I swore, and I cursed him. 
Let me tell you about a, what it means to be a Christian is that, is that this is what I bring to the table. All of my sin, all of my foolishness, all of my self-confidence, all of my insecurities. And let me tell you what he did for me. Everything. He knows me better than I know myself. And that look when our eyes met, it not only was reminding me of how foolish I am and how self-centered I am, but that look was reminding me that he told me he would pray for me and that my faith wouldn't fail. Because if I just had to depend on my faith, if I just had to have confidence in my faith, I wouldn't make it. It's what my faith is put in, and that's Jesus, and he has done everything for me. You see, when Jesus begins to take root in our lives, what happens is we get a sense of humor. We're actually able to acknowledge our wrongs, and we're able to put our confidence in the place that it should be placed. See, when Peter began cursing the Lord Jesus, he was communicating far more than he realized. Because asking that Jesus would be anathematized is exactly what happened. Jesus was cursed. He became a curse so that he might forgive his people for their lies and their self-confidence and their lack of security. And that he might empower them by forgiving them empower them to be truth-tellers and obedient and confident, not in themselves, but in him. Now that's funny. And that's the truth. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have loved us. And we thank you that in admitting our wrongs, and in acknowledging that we have denied you, that we have made promises to others and we haven't kept, and acknowledging that we shouldn't put our hope in ourselves and we shouldn't trust in our abilities to bring hope. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed strengthen us, that we might receive you and live by the truth that you were made a curse for us. That we might trust you, believe in you, live for you, obey you, and by your grace even have a sense of humor. A sense of humor that doesn't make light of our sin, a sense of humor that doesn't, that doesn't trivialize our sins at all. But a sense of humor that is real and clear and knows that apart from you we have nothing help us Lord more and more of you in our lives and less of us in your name Amen